if we ha- gave out monthly MVP awards as a radio station, there is not a doubt as to who would receive the month of May's MVP award. Um, so many people had questions about the lunar eclipse. They wanted to know what exactly it was that we were actually seeing. They wanted to know the best way to see it. They wanted to know the best way to see it if there was cloud cover, if there was poor weather. And the guy that came through in spades with every lunar eclipse uh, eclipse answer that he was equipped to answer was Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. And um, he was a gem, not only on this show, but on the uh, the Cats at Night show and the Cats Roundtable as well. We're very, very fortunate to be able to tap into his expertise. He's a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and an edutainer with a great deal of expertise in astronomy and space. Very kind to uh, stay up late with us on a Friday morning or get up early, I guess, depending on your perspective. Steve, it is great to talk with you again. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you. Always a pleasure to be back here on 77 WABC. And, Frank, I hope uh, you and the listeners got the chance to see that eclipse. Again, great information from this wonderful subject that we talk about. And I do appreciate uh, all the nice, uh, you know, callers that call in on these subject matters. Well, so a lot of folks in our area were a little irked that they couldn't get a clear view of the eclipse because of the cloud cover or Mm -hmm. the weather conditions in in general. I know you were watching this in Arizona. What was your view of the eclipse like? Well, the weather forecast here in Phoenix was supposed to be good. And luckily for us, we moved up to Sedona to do an event. And there, the clouds continued to creep. So we were looking at it, to be always honest with this audience, through a partly cloudy sky. And as the main event took place, well, you know, clouds came, just like I'm sure many of the listeners here on 77 WABC. But we got a few interesting images out of it. And what I thought, Frank, was so impressive about this is as I'm looking through this particular at this eclipse through the telescope, right along the lunar limb are stars And a few of them are just hanging on the edge of the lunar mountains. And as the moon slides across the sky, you could watch them disappear. And if you waited about an hour, you'd see them pop out the other side. But just a surreal experience. But the next one on the calendar is scheduled for the morning of November the 8th. And hopefully we'll be talking about that in great deal. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Uh, A lot of stuff that I want to get to over the course of the next hour. I want to give people an opportunity to call in with questions as well. If they have questions related to the stars, uh, questions related to space or anything else, they can call us 800-848-WABC for the hour. That's 800-848-9222. But one of the reasons that I was eager to uh, chat with you today is because we're actually going to be off on Monday, and there's going to be a big meteor shower on May 30th going into May 31st. Uh, give us the lowdown on what what's what's exactly happening, what folks can expect to see, and what the best way for them is to see it. Well, Frank, this is an interesting story. It's been popping up in all different areas in the media. And I tried to take this serious at first and saying, you know, we hear about this meteor shower months ago, and a potential storm. So always giving accurate information here on this radio show, 77 WABC, as we talk with you and the listeners. Here's what's supposedly going to happen. And again, I'm not a snake oil salesman, nor am I trying to be, because when you get into the media prediction business, you've got to be very careful. So here's the scoop of what the media is saying and qualified people in the astronomy world. There is a potential 
a high potential, that is, of seeing not a shower but a storm, all from a comet called Comet 73P. This was the 73rd comet that ever, they call them periodic comets that has an orbit calculated. And what's interesting about this comet, it's called Swazman-Wachmann. It was discovered in 1930 in Germany. Kind of a garden variety comet. Remember, these are like dirty snowballs about a mile and a half in diameter. And the astronomers then, when they were taking images, they weren't really looking for a comet. They were looking for asteroids, and they find this thing. So move forward, fast forward into time. We find out that the Hubble Space Telescope got an image of this object, this comet 73P, in 1995. And guess what they see? They see the nucleus of this particular comet starting to disintegrate. So large chunks were breaking off. So where we get the prediction analysis for a potential meteor shower or a storm is they look at the orbit and go backwards. And they know, just like that at the tailpipe of a car, exhaust coming out, carbon monoxide and other compounds, this material is like little tiny pebbles and maybe even large chunks the size of a fist or more. The Earth is supposed to intercept that stream of particles from the 1995, you know, removal of particles. Now, here's what's interesting about this. The predictions are, and we'll be very careful and very accurate in our predictions here, if you're going to look for this, hopefully over the holiday weekend, if you have a chance to look for East Coast time, they're predicting, that is the astronomers, that the intensity of the showers we pass through this big stream of particles is probably best at 1 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time on the morning of the 31st. For us here in Arizona, that's going to translate to 10 p.m. on the 30th. So where would you look? Now, hoping a clear sky, everybody in this listening audience has, you would go outside. You don't even need a pair of binoculars. You might want them. This is a naked eye event, but you need the darkest possible skies. So if you live in the bright lights of cities, well, expect not to see as much as you would in the country. That's common sense. So where would you look? You'd look high up into the southern part of the sky, from east coast all the way across the United States. The place where this is going to be best seen, now I'm not discounting the east coast at all, because nobody's sure exactly how much particles are going to come through. They're predicting, the astronomers, that looking overhead, this meteor shower or storm would be most intense for people watching it. If you were, let's say, in Baja, California, or us here in the West, but also all of North America, Frank, has an opportunity to see it. Now, here's a, here's a way to really look at this. High up in the southern sky, right at the times I gave, and moving into the southwest at this time for the east coast is a bright star called Arcturus. So if people go, like we mentioned on our KTAR.com, you know, the Dr. Sky blog, you can download a little star chart. And you can do that. It's free. It's a little paper star chart, but it'll help you find it or use your smartphone. That's the area to look. So without a lot of words, you'd get a reclining chair. Hopefully you're in dark skies, no matter where you're listening. And if anything is going to happen, it could be an intense stream of particles. Because they're predicting that the particle stream, Frank, is going to come as close to the Earth as 33,000 miles. But again, on the cautious side, because I'd love to be invited back here and not do a crazy prediction, <laughs> it could be one or two meteors or, but wait, let me explain this, because this is where the possibility of something big comes. And I take it credible with what I've read in many of these things that the astronomers are putting out and in the media. In 1833 before he was president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln experienced an intense meteor shower slash storm called the Leonids. That's the one that happens every November. He was asleep, supposedly, as the story goes, and he heard rustling and people talking around 2 a.m., 3 a.m. in the dark of night, the bewitching hour, like 3 a.m. Lo and behold, people came out. They didn't have a lot of city lights. And Frank, I'm not making this up. Hundreds of thousands of meteors were seen per hour. 
Wow. Fast forward to the West in 1966. The Leonids roared once again. Friends of mine and people I know who saw this were at Kitt Peak near Tucson. That night, they were predicting a meteor storm. Nothing much happened during the night except on the morning <clears throat> excuse me, of November the 17th. People looked and said, wow, there's nothing happening. At around 5.40 a.m. Mountain Time, over 500,000 meteors per hour in this short stream of about 20 or 30 minutes happened. So the bottom line is you never know what to expect. So if you have an opportunity, folks listening, Frank and everybody, why not try it? But the darker skies are obviously common sense. But this could be something good. But you know how finicky the predictions could be. We're saying it's probably worth watching. And you learn a lot anyway by looking up. Steve, um, for my own ignorance and maybe for the clarity of a lot of people listening, what exactly is the difference between a meteor shower and a meteor storm? Good question. If we're looking at rates that are probably over 1,000 meteors per hour, now some may take me to task and say, well, anything over 100 meteors per hour is going to be a storm. But according to reliable sources, and these are the things, I've watched these things for so many years. I'm 66 young years. I started doing this, I'm sure, like many listeners out there. I was about 10 years old. Actually, I saw right in New York City when I lived in Jackson Heights, not far from the Boulevard Watch Factory. I remember this like it was yesterday. We watched the Leonid shower of one of those years back in the 60s, and we could see it. But they're saying now meteor, meteor storms are probably differentiated by something, let's say, over 1,000 meteors per hour. Now, some may say, well, if you see a couple of hundred an hour, it's a storm. But these things are very finicky because what you're looking at, think of it in three dimension. In space, you're looking at, if you close your eyes, hopefully you're not driving, but you would say that in this big dust stream, there's a bunch of particles coming off this comet, moving around in this orbit. And some of them are very tightly packed and some are loose. But when you have predictions that the orbital plane of this comet, 73P, brings that stuff within 33,000 miles of the Earth, I think it's well worth watching. So a meteor shower is probably your regular ones, like you have Perseids, you have Orionids. They may start off with maybe upwards of 10 or 20 an hour, maybe even 50 to 100. But in my prediction, anything over about 1,000 would be a storm. But remember, they don't. sometimes they're not going to go 100, maybe 1,000 an hour for the entire night. So you could be watching, like I said before, and see relatively few, and then, uh-oh, here comes the storm. So it's probably worth watching. 800-848-WABC if you have questions about anything space-related. That's 800-848-9222. My guest is Dr. Sky, Steve Cates. You could check out his blog at ktar.com. There's a ton of great material on there, and uh, he's the guy that helped us guide us through the uh, lunar eclipse, and now he's doing the same thing with the meteor shower. Uh, A lot of people already queuing up. We have two open phone lines remaining. Now, I read this article in Axios this week, Steve, about how big the space business is. When a lot of us think about space, we tend to think of things like NASA, the the importance historically of the moon landing in 1969, and a lot of government efforts of towards space exploration. It's just relatively recently that we've started to look towards space exploration as being the domain of the private sector as well. Folks like Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson and Elon Musk, um, they are predicting that space could actually be a $10 trillion private sector business by 2040? Yes, and that's interesting because look at this. 
I mean, we're going through this terrible thing with inflation and blah, 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 gas prices all over. We're going through these tough times, and God bless everybody, you know, who goes through this, all of us. But in the space area, for many people who thought, oh, this isn't worth it, it seems to be where a lot of the private, you know, private money is going. And the predictions are trillions of dollars by maybe 2040, upwards of maybe $10 trillion of what? Revenue. That's, that, that's sales, revenue, and things like that. So, you know, I'm not in the stockbroker field or stock market myself right now, but I'm just saying that this is something that people really should take a look at because not only is space tourism, we're talking about the ability to launch spacecraft low Earth orbit, cheaper, better. You know, hopefully they have to reduce the dollar amount. It used to be like, you know, for every pound in space, it used to be some figure like $10,000 a pound just to get it off the Earth. That's changed dramatically. And we have to give Boeing Corporation some real credit. They launched over the last week or so one of their Starliner, the second attempt. It's basically a spacecraft that can take upwards of seven astronauts up to the International Space Station and other uses as you maybe go around the moon. It's actually larger than the Apollo capsule, but not as large as NASA's Orion capsule. And what's great about this, Frank, is that it made a successful docking, even though this was the second attempt, with the International Space Station. And the astronauts on board and cosmonauts on board the International Space Station, they knew this, but there was a big surprise when they opened the hatch. It was unmanned except for a dummy, and you really can't call her that. She's just an anthropomorphic you know, figure, a science experiment. Her name is Rosie the Rocketeer, and she was loaded with all kinds of instruments, which is interesting to talk about habitation in space and all kinds of things that we need to know. So we see this trend happening. And obviously, it seems like it's a real, real powerful trend, wouldn't you think, that things are going to move light speed. But I've also heard the other day something else that's kind of of concern. China is now looking at the potential, at least that's what we read on the Internet. We don't always believe everything, that they may look at a way to destroy, and that's a strong word this early in the morning, the Starlink satellites because they're being so – they're utilized, what, to help the uh, – in the Ukrainian war, we're helping, or the Starlink is helping them get data where they need it and acquisition of targets. But they're also possibly thinking that this could be something that if we need to take down something in space, well, imagine that, shooting down Elon Musk satellites, that's a pretty nasty thing mm. to do. But space is a great frontier, and obviously, from the financial side, it looks like it has, you know, it's obviously a positive thing for the future. All right, 800-848-WABC. A ton of folks lined up with questions. We'll try and squeeze in as many as we can. Frank is on Staten Island. Frank, you're on with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Scott. Hi, I just had a question. Are we going to be able to see the meteor event if we have rain all weekend? <laughs> well, let's put it this way. You need clear skies. You'd have a different kind of showers there, Frank. Good morning. <laughs> But obviously, as we look into the sky, again, the real secret to this is nobody really knows for sure. But if I were a betting man, and I'm betting on this, that it'll be absolutely something to see. Uh, you're going to have to wait for those clouds to pass because those showers are not the kind we're talking about here. All right. Thank you, Frank. Appreciate it. 800-848-WABC. Patricia is in Westchester. Hello, Patricia. Uh, hello. Good evening. I have a question on the lunar eclipse. Uh, yes. Good morning. Uh, the Earth revolves around the sun counterclockwise, correct? Correct, correct. And the, the moon revolves around the earth counterclockwise. Yes. So for the eclipse, the earth comes between the moon and the sun. Is yes. it because the earth 
is moving between the two or the moon is moving behind the earth and it's the moon that causes it? Which of the two bodies causes the shade? Well, a very good question, Patricia, and good morning to you. Here, here's the answer on this. All these objects are moving through space. The Earth's going around the sun. The moon, of course, is orbiting around the Earth. So you have that what I call sacred geometry. You have to have the Earth, when it casts its big shadow out into space, the moon needs to cut into that dark shadow. We call that the umbra. And depending on the type of eclipse, this was a total lunar eclipse, it went really centrally through that. So the simple geometry is this. The sun's out there, the Earth's in the middle, and the moonlight is blocked by the Earth. And again, if I've said this a thousand times, and I'll repeat it proudly, if you're on the surface of the moon, looking back at the Earth, Patricia, you would see an object four times the size of our full moon that we see in our sky with this gigantic red glow around the edges of the Earth, and it's all because of that perfect alignment. So all these objects are moving. It just happens rarely or semi-rarely that they all line up to that 180-degree lineup but again, Earth and the Moon are constantly moving in orbit. Today. Thank you, Patricia. 800-848-WABC. We have two open lines. We're going to try and get to as many of your calls as we can. I have a number of questions about what's happening in the night sky. We'll find out what else you can look forward to seeing in the night sky for those of you that are interested in that sort of thing or just interested in knowing what's happening, even if you don't want to take out your telescope yourself you just want to know what's happening in the sky. Steve Cates is here for the hour, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Check out his blog, KTAR.com. He is a regular contributor to this program, a regular contributor to the Cats at Night show, and uh, somebody that we're very, very lucky to be able to tap into his expertise. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. other side of midnight i'm frank moreno that is east of the sun if you want to know what's east of the sun that you can actually see the guy to talk to about it is steve cates aka dr sky you can check out his blog at ktar.com he's our shepherd in terms of what you can see in the night sky and uh, there's nobody more knowledgeable there's also nobody in radio that has a better voice we're going to try and answer as many of your questions as we can this hour, 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Speaking of the sun, Steve, um, yes. we always get a lot of questions about 
solar activity, especially those of us that are interested in radio and on the radio, there's always some concerns that things like solar flares could affect the radio listening experience that a lot of people are enjoying. What's going on with respect to solar activity at the moment? Well, solar activity, Frank, in cycle 25 is really cooking. And it may be that this particular solar cycle, I think we mentioned in our last episode, that it may be 30% higher than cycle 24. But what does that mean to everybody out there listening? Right now, a large sunspot group known as Active Region 3014 has just moved off the sun. It was there for about a week. And it was gigantic. And if you measured the distance or diameter, I should say diameter more correctly, of this sunspot group, it was a third of the distance from the Earth to the moon, which is pretty incredible, or about the size of the diameter of the planet Jupiter. But we expect it. It's one of the largest sunspot groups in this cycle, big. With the naked eye, not recommending people stare at the sun, but if you had those solar glasses, you know, the proper ones, I did this, you know, you stared at the sun with those solar glasses, and I could see that spot with the naked eye. Now, it didn't produce any gigantic X-level flares. That's important. Why? We don't know. But I can predict this, and again, this is really truth. We see that this solar cycle will be much more intense. What's coming around on the left edge of the sun, we don't know. But sometimes astronomers get this technique where they use, it's it's like a magnetic type of a, a device that they can see basically what magnetic fields are on the other side of the sun. So they predict that a few new biggies are coming. But when these things blow, and we've talked about it before, and maybe somebody's a first-time listener, when these sunspots actually just, the magnetic fields just cross. Imagine, imagine the power of even one small flare, like maybe 100 million atomic bombs, the energy. It's just incredible, the power of the sun. And remember, the sun is an average-sized star. So imagine some of these megastars that are out there. But directly, if we get hit directly with a solar flare, as we, as we know, lots of damage in the digital world that we live in, our cell phones. The gas pumps with horrible gas prices, but imagine not even being able to get gas Mm. because the entire infrastructure was wiped out because of flare and flare activity. We obviously live in a deep digital world, but just be on the alert. There's not much you can do about it. I mean, it's ridiculous to tell people, well, watch the skies. That's a beautiful thing. But we know in this digital world that with satellites and everything we depend on out there, we probably sadly say, not to sound depressing, are in store for some pretty hellacious Mm. times when the solar cycle peaks around 2025. Now, a lot of folks may hear our discussion. We're talking about solar flares, solar activities, meteor showers, uh, lunar eclipses, and they may say, all right, well, what does this matter? How does what's happening in space and in the solar system specifically, how does that have any impact on the lives that people are living here on Earth? Well, it's a very good question. And the argument from the negative side is that we spend all this money and we don't see any real results. But again, not being paid by any space agency or any government agency, I can just say this. The strides that we've made in studying zero gravity, some of the things we've learned in how to produce better chemicals in space that we need here on the Earth, obviously machines and thinking of how to work with inertial machines, you know, things that are like, you know, perpetual motion machines, we're learning a lot. But it takes time for this to transmit. It's just the same story that we could say when we went back to the development of the electric light bulb, Thomas Edison, and even the telephone. We looked at that and didn't see an immediate gratification. So it takes a lot of time. But what makes this more difficult right now, and I certainly agree with a lot of people, there's certainly a lot of social problems and financial problems here on the earth. So I'm hoping 
that maybe some of that money can translate in making lives of people much better, as we talked about maybe a $10 trillion space industry. Hopefully that'll translate to making lives here on the Earth a lot better. And always, like the great discoverers of the past, it's probably what, in the, Frank, in the, in the human gene to want to continue to explore, to find new worlds. Mm. And who said it best? The late Stephen Hawking said in so many words through his synthesized voice, we really need to get off this planet and explore other worlds because obviously it doesn't look like we have the resources and right. we really can't get along. A lot of people queued up to speak with you. Let's try and get to as many of them as we can. 800-848-WABC. Robert is in Calverton. Robert, you're on with Steve Cates. Good morning, Robert. Good morning. I had a close meteor experience. Did you ever have one? Meaning a seeing one or actually like getting close to one on the ground? A seeing one in the sky you're referring to, Robert? Yes, at low altitude. I have. I have. And it was back in April of 1966 almost to be. I think the date, I can almost remember this like it was yesterday. Boy, do I remember a lot of yesterdays, Frank. <laughs> I think it was April 25th, 1966. We were in New Jersey. I never forget this. With my parents, they were looking at houses. And I don't think the houses cost more than about forty or fifty thousand dollars then, not like today. But anyway, we're sitting outside, and I was bored, literally sitting inside listening to all the talk. So my sister and I sat outside, and lo and behold, we're looking out in the sky, and we saw Venus. I knew that then. I was young, and get a load of this: a fireball streaked across the sky, and I can tell you, Robert, I actually heard the thing sizzle, and it's documented that it actually supposedly crashed in Canada. Now, that's my story. Let me hear yours. Yes, a uh, similar story. One evening in the 90s, I happened to step outside and look up at the sky, see the stars, planets, etc. And all of a sudden, I hear a sizzling sound. And yeah. <laughs> I, look, I look, and I just happen to look in the right place, straight up, from the south, a meteor comes in at low altitude, I can only estimate like 5,000 feet. Mm. Brilliant, red and green. Yeah. And it sounded like a firework. But there was no fireworks, <laughs> except from the sky. That's a different kind of firework, right? <laughs> yes, and, and I saw it like, I'll call it flame out. And I thought maybe I was going to hear an explosion in a few seconds, but I never did. So I guess it burned up in the atmosphere. I Probably. Yeah. Trail. yeah, it's it's pretty common. But here's another two ones that I didn't see these. And I forget the exact date, Robert and Frank. But back in the night, I think it was in the 90s. If I'm, somebody can correct me if they have their you know computer there. There was one mm. that fell on Glastonbury, Connecticut, and one up in Peekskill, New York, not too far from where the station is right now. And actually, the most historic one, sad to say, there's never been a human being supposedly killed by a meteorite fall. There was an alleged person in India that supposedly was killed. But the most horrific one, or the most dramatic one, was a woman sitting in Alabama. She was sitting watching television, and it actually came through her roof, maybe the size of like a basketball. Now, can you, can you imagine, Robert, that experience? Yeah. She became instantly wealthy because... If you find one of these on your property, some of these, not, not kidding, are worth a lot of money. And that's not why we're in the business. But there's a guy, and I don't want to name him because this gentleman is really one of the connoisseurs of meteorites. He goes all over the world to find them. He allegedly dug up one in Africa, and they chased him, and they put him in jail for a while 
because he was actually trying to take like a crane and pick this big thing up the size of a small car. But uh, your experience, Robert, is pretty wild, just like mine. I'll never forget it. And if anybody ever has one of those experiences, count yourself lucky because they're few and far between, at least the sizzling kind. Yes, and also the smoke trail. That was incredible. Mm. It, it, must, must, it had to be like 5,000 feet or less. Above. I'll bet you you're right. And probably the size of it, get a load of this, folks, is probably, and this is not a guess, this is fairly accurate, a object that's maybe the size of a, maybe half the size of a basketball, let's say a grapefruit, it could do that kind of a, a light show. But the one that supposedly came back in 66 that sizzled over, it came from the south. It came from like over Virginia over New Jersey, everybody in New York City would have seen it. And then it just made that, I'll never forget it, it was like that sizzling, snapping sound. And if you had a radio on then, I guarantee you it would have made the radio station either fade out or crackle because of the, it's, in, it's actually sending out an electromagnetic pulse of its own. Thank you, Robert. Appreciate it. 800-848-WABC. Richard is on Long Island. Hello, Richard. Hey, Frank, and hey, Dr. Skye. Um, Good morning. I have, a que- I have a question about um, the constellations that are, you know, going to be notably seen in, in the changing summer sky. You know, yeah. I mean, over the years, you know, I can always identify the the Big and Little Dipper, Orion sure. Felt, but, you know, what are some of the constellations that are notably going to be able to be seen, and, and what are some, you know, what are the best ways to identify them, I guess? Great question. And we'll start off with what's visible in the summer skies. And from your area, this is what we're talking about. As June moves on, the solstice of summer begins. Clear nights, look around, and I'm going to say this in, in two times, different times. Look to the south and let's say mid-June, right after, I don't know, maybe 11 p.m. You'll be able to see in the summer sky the constellation Scorpius, though low in the south. You know, this is amazing, Richard and Frank. This is a constellation that really looks like a scorpion if you're in dark enough skies. And just to the left of it, again, darker the sky, the better, naturally, no, 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 no doubt, is the central hub of the Milky Way. It's in Sagittarius the Archer. Now, we're out here in Arizona. We have fairly good skies. From Phoenix, from New York, you have a difficult time seeing with bright lights. But that's a good thing to start off with. Look, and a pair of binoculars will show you. But again, if you go to our KTAR.com blog over there, just go to the menu. Not only is there an update, Frank and and Richard, on this whole meteor theoretical storm or what may happen. That's my lead article. You can just download a little star chart that's nice to have in your hand, which will show you all the constellations that are out there. So Scorpius and Sagittarius are the two major ones for the summer season. And don't miss it. If you take a trip, let's say, up to dark skies, let's up in New York State Mm. or anywhere you're listening, I guarantee you one thing, Frank, there's nothing more magnificent than Richard looking at the summer Milky Way from the dark skies of Arizona, it appears like there are thunderclouds in the sky. And with the scanning of the binoculars and no moonlight, you want to pick a night with no moonlight, you don't want to leave. I don't want that kind of night to end, and I don't think you guys would want that night to end. Yeah, that's for imagine. sure. That's for sure. Uh, talking with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, 800-848-WABC. Steve, since the last time you yep. were here, we've seen uh, Congress hold these so-called UFO hearings for the first time in half a century. Most people, whether they're skeptics of the UAP issue or whether they tend to be believers that there that there's life out there and maybe even life that has visited our planet, they didn't seem to think that these UAP hearings moved the needle much at all. What was your take on, oh, uh, on this? Yeah, absolutely, Frank. I don't let my blood boil too much, and I'll keep myself under control here. 
But I was kind of disappointed, and maybe I shouldn't expect or anybody too much from this. I mean, we have government agencies testifying in front of other government officials. That's great. And we're saying there's 400 of these sightings that we really can't identify the, the detail. It's We now know it could be a national security issue. But here's what they do. After that, they go into the closed hearings. I'd love to be the fly on the wall because this is the part that I was disappointed in. And maybe they'll do it again. Let's hope. What about testimony from people who've seen these things and listen to the detailed testimony and the specific ones that I talk about with John Katamatidis on his program and, and all other programs on this, particularly with John, because he likes this kind of stuff. And so do a lot of people. We want to hear. We want to hear the truth. That's exactly what we want to hear. But the most prolific one that I think we can still talk about is a gentleman that I've talked to many times, his book, Faded Giant. This particular gentleman, Captain Silas, or Salas, he was there at Malstrom Air Force Base in 1967 when the blue light came out of the sky. We don't make this stuff up. It went over the Minuteman missiles at that particular, or, or flight, as they call it, of these Minuteman missiles. And the MPs were all on the radio chatter, look at the blue thing, what is it? It summarily shut down every one of these nuclear devices, nuclear weapons, the Minuteman-type missiles in the ground. And when technicians came from these companies that, you know, support this, there was big, gigantic, you know, wire harnesses fried. I mean, why, when are we going to ever hear about this stuff? And, and I wonder, Frank, I mean, your opinion and everybody else's out there. I wouldn't run and bury my head under my pillow right. if I found out that there's extraterrestrial existence. What's the big secret but I was just a little disappointed, and I know I didn't get, you know, in two seconds an answer. But I'm a, I'm a little bit disturbed by that, that we heard government officials testifying to government officials about what we don't know and what we think we don't know. But then they go in a closed hearing. Right. What, what was the rest of that hearing? We'll never know that, yeah. right? No, it's a great question. 800-848-WABC. Bill is in Huntington. Hello, Bill. Okay. In 2002... There was a TV show named Firefly, okay? And I found the DVD set series from this, and I spent a day watching it. Yes. And what I learned was that the premise of the show is that humanity has migrated to another solar system. Mm -hmm. And this solar system has 13 habitable planets, mm -hmm. okay? Yes. Okay. What do you think is the maximum number of habitable, habitable planets in a solar system? Interesting. It all depends on the size of the star. And if we go on the large scale, here's the answer that I would give. If we go around a big supergiant star that's not radiating enough energy, it's probably less likely mm -hmm. that from our standpoint, Bill, that we would think that there's habitable planets. But on the other side, most astronomers today believe this. This is interesting that the red dwarf star systems might have the habitation planets, and maybe that could support, who knows, maybe more than our own solar system. We know from exoplanets, these are the objects orbiting other stars, that some of them are larger than the Earth. I don't have the exact you know, description. There's like long numbers for these things. People can look it up. But there's one called the water planet that they think is just a planetary object that's 100% water. But one of the best areas that people can check out, go on the web and look up the TRAPPIST system. It's named after a special you know, a group of uh, research uh, scientists and astronomers. There's a TRAPPIST system that's not that many you know, far away from us that may still have a good number of what they call habitable planets. How many? It's dependent, again, on what type of star. 
is supposedly supporting the life there? That's a good answer. Thank you, Bill. 800-848-WABC. Isabel in Manhattan has been patiently holding. Hello, Isabel. Hi, Frank. And hello, Mr. Sky. Good morning. Dr. Sky. Thank you. Um, I I have two questions, if I may. Sure, please. They're connected. Um, how fast does the Earth turn? Mm-hmm. Okay. And then the second question? Oh, I want the answer first. Oh, boy. Okay. Well, it depends where you are. If, we, if you're rolling through space, the Earth's moving around in space at about 66,000 miles per hour. The Earth's rotating on its axis. Probably if you get toward, let's say, the closest part to the equator, maybe over 1,000 miles per hour, you go up to the latitude of New York, and we're probably, and I'm not guessing, but I'm not, I'm not 100% certain, somewhere maybe in the six or 700-mile-per-hour rotation, go to the North Pole, and obviously there's zero rotation if you're standing right at the North Pole. So the Earth is moving through space in, in three different things. The Earth's turning, the Earth's revolving around the sun, and the sun's dragging the entire solar system through space. So it's like a three-part system. Right. Wow. So how can we walk on the street and not feel anything? Mm. Well, very interesting question, because what happens is gravity seems to balance us out. But if the Earth automatically just shut down, let's say all of a sudden it had a braking action, like, you know, really new brake shoes and brake pads on a car. <laughs> every, everything, Isabel, would literally just take off and jolt. And we would not want to see. That would be my biggest nightmare to think about in this early hour, don't you think? <laughs> And Isabel, no, you have some you have some very good questions, and and Thank it's you. very interesting. I just want to leave you with this positive thought: that when you look at the nighttime sky and you see things rising in the east, and you sit out, let's say, on a beautiful summer night, and you see the moon rise, what's really happening is the Earth is turning from west to east. So the illusion in the sky that you're seeing is the turning of the Earth as it's rolling, let's say, and you're in the New York area. From where I'm in Phoenix, I'm rolling, we're all static, but we're rolling in the direction, say, from west to east. The illusion in the sky is the sky's moving to the right. That's the illusion that you see on the earth. So the earth's turning west to east. Thank you, Isabel. 800-848-WABC. We're going to continue with your questions in a minute. I have a number of questions for uh, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, as well. 800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. One of the unsung 
musical geniuses of this or any other century with her hit song, Stars Are Blind, a very apropos selection because we're talking a little bit about what's happening with the stars with a fellow that knows it better than anybody, Steve Cates, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer. We call him Dr. Sky. He's got a lot of expertise in astronomy and space. If you want to check out his blog, you can go to ktar.com. We're going to get back to your calls in just a minute. And for the next 14 minutes, we're going to try and squeeze in as many of your calls as we can at 800-848-WABC. Steve, I did read something interesting this week regarding an evolving view of the expansion of the universe. And I'll be honest, this was one of those articles that I read twice because I wasn't sure I quite comprehended it. And I said, all right, well, hopefully we can have Steve on uh, this week and he can explain this for me. What do we mean in general when we say the universe is expanding? And what are these images from Voyager 1 telling us about the rate of expansion of the universe? Well, Frank, this is a very interesting story. In the short time we have, this is basically what's happening. There's a thing in in astronomy called the Hubble constant. And it's something that we predict by looking at spectrum of stars, you know, the color spectrum. The farther shift to the right, the, the alleged farther distance the object is. So the Hubble constant, it's a, it's a velocity at a distance, and it's like a constant that they talk about. So here it is. The old number was 65 kilometers a second for every megaparsec. All right, that sounds like a lot of words. A parsec is 3.26 light years. Why is that important? In the old days, when they tried to measure distances of stars, it's like looking at the other side of a triangle. So that little separation or wiggle at the end of the triangle, a star would be, or it's, it's parsec, or it's, it's movement, would be one little arc second at 3.26 light years. So astronomers say that that's a measuring distance in the universe. So the 65 kilometers per second per megaparsec was a standard of recession. Now they're saying something strange. They're saying it could be up to 74 kilometers per second per megaparsec. Why is that important? Because apparently there's some, there's some phenomenon out there. I mean, maybe that's the poor choice of words this early in the morning. But there's something out there that we really don't understand. This is dark energy. The farther something is moving away from the big, I should say, big expansion, otherwise known as the Big Bang, you would imagine that over time, like you throw a rock into a calm lake or a stream or whatever, the ripples end. What's happening in something in gravity is forcing the thing to go faster. That's strange. And Einstein, in all his genius, tried to figure out something. What's gluing all these galaxies and holding matter together in space? He called it spooky action at a distance. That might be the subject of dark matter. So what we're talking about here, Frank, is just something amazing. We know so much, but we know so little. Isn't that a fair statement? Mm. So that's really what's going on in the universe right now. And it gets way more complicated. I mean, obviously, this would take more time to explain this in detail. But when we have the CERN accelerator that's looking at this so-called God particle called this, you know, this Higgs boson, as we call it, a boson. This is a particle in matter, like a tiny little thing. And as we get into quantum mechanics, what is it? It's a particle associated with something called a Higgs field. Why is this important? It transmits matter to things that travel through it. And to make it even simpler, it's that how things in the universe, stars, planets, even people, came to have mass. This is something strange. So we're wondering, what the heck is causing the universe to maybe phase shift here, where things are going faster when they're not supposed to, according to common sense? But it may also be a collision of something, and this gets deep and will be quick. 
There's another discovery that was made totally separate from all the things about velocities and everything. It's called gravitational waves. And these two big black holes were found to have some sort of collision. And we here on the Earth identified these gravity waves. What are they? They're ripples in space-time. So they're literally warping space-time because what is the fourth dimension? It's time. So we're just unfolding all these things. And I hope what I just said in the last two minutes Mm. is somewhat believable because, hey, I'm always honest with you in the audience. Nobody really understands any of this. Right. 800-848-WABC. Janet is in Manhattan. Hello, Janet. Oh, hi. Thank you. I'm curious about something. In a way, it ties in with the question the woman asked before about the rotational speed of the Earth. And I've been discovering there doesn't seem to be any way of predicting um, what what speed a planet will rotate at. It doesn't seem to correlate with anything. I mean, we know the revolution speed going around the sun correlates perfectly with how far away you are. The further yeah. away you are, the slower you go. The closer you are, the faster you go. True. And it's totally predictable. There's a ratio there, right? Kepler's mm-hmm. constant. You can predict yes. it. Absolutely. But um, from what I understand, Mars, for example, rotates 500 miles an hour on its axis, and Venus rotates at the ridiculously small, uh, slow rate of four miles an hour. It takes mo- uh, Venus longer to turn on its axis than mm-hmm. it takes to go around the sun over yes, 240 you- Earth days. Yes, Janet, what, and one, what, o- one other yeah. thing about Venus, let me interject, and thank you for these yeah. great questions. The problematic thing with Venus is, get a load of this, this is amazing. Venus rotates backwards. So something dynamically (laughs) happened on Venus. We have no Uh, idea. Maybe it was a collision. But your but your point is you're saying nobody understands. Is that what you're asking about how the well, Earth? Is I don't rotating? understand what Mm -hmm. what determines how fast a planet rotates. Is it purely random? It pretty much is random, but it's also due let me say this. If you look at the objects that are in the solar system, because Mercury is closest to the sun, its rotational right. speed is like 57 days. Yes, it's all, it's all due internally to the planet itself. Some have a heavier core, like we believe the Earth has a magma core and an inner core, and probably a very molten core. So that's also determinant of how the Earth is going to turn and other planets like itself. But going back to Venus, you're so right. Its year is longer than – I mean, its day is longer than its year, and it rotates backwards – Something happened to these planets, but it's probably some sort of mass distribution inside these objects. It's like a dynamo. That's the best way I can explain it. You start, you start moving this liquid material like molten metal, and you start turning it. Obviously, it forms into a rhythm, and we call it a circadian rhythm. It's a daily turning, as we know here on the Earth. Steve, uh, real quick, I, and I didn't give you a heads up that I was going to ask you that's about okay. this, so I'm, I hope I'm not uh, throwing you any any something that's out of left field. No, um, right. There was a, a recent study led by a planetary scientist from the University of Central Florida by the name of Philip Metzger, who found that the reason Pluto lost its planetary status is not valid. I've always been a, always a little sore over the fact that they downgraded Pluto from planet to dwarf planetoid. Where do you stand on Pluto's planet status in general? And could there be any hope of getting Pluto restored in the eyes of astronomers back to its prior status? Yeah, this is a great question. Really quick. You know, I'm a little agitated about this one because my mentor in college was Dr. Tombaugh, who discovered Mm. it. What a great guy. But beside that, yes, 
Mike Brown of Caltech came up with the concept here that Pluto's a dwarf and should be removed because it's a what we call a Kuiper belt object. And the whole classification of objects beyond Pluto are in a different category, not deserving the name of planetary status. But the argument that you're raising here that the scientist is raising, not your argument, is that his argument is very valid. The discussion of what a planet is has a very serious mistake in how the whole, the whole you know, the, the, the description, the, the derivation of this. So I think, very simply, not because I knew Dr. Tombaugh, but the reality is if you look at this object, it moves around the sun once every 248 years. It does basically have a weird orbit. It goes 17 degrees to the plane of the solar system. But yes, like many other people, guess what? It has many moons too. So why shouldn't Pluto be restored? And I think they really need to go back and stop squabbling over what the definition of is is, as we would say, in the, in the political world. But in this case, yeah, Pluto, I think, should be remaining a planet. And it's crazy. The whole story gets deep about how they didn't have a quorum of people for the International Astronomical Union, and so many people didn't get to vote, and then they decided to change it. And it's a long story, but the truth is, why not make Pluto a planet? You know why, Frank? Kids like it because it's small like them. Right. <laughs> I think it should be a planet. Uh, amen. 800-848-WABC. Doug is in Montclair, New Jersey. Hello, Doug. Hey, thanks uh, for taking my call, Frank. And uh, hello, Dr. Sky. Good morning, sir. Um, okay, so here, here we go. Uh, between 1991 and 1995, I lived in Yosemite National Park. Wow. And um, we used to drive over Tioga Pass to to the east side um, to Owens Owens River Valley. Okay. Um, so so between like Bridgeport and I would say like Mammoth Lakes, and and we used to uh, hang out in the hot tubs, right? So, like fun. <laughs> oh yeah, it was great. And it was so quiet. You could hear a pin drop in the Owens river Valley. And, um, we used to see those sizzling shooting stars all the time. Beautiful. I mean, you could hear them just sizzle out of the atmosphere. Wow. And so, I mean, I feel lucky for that. And, um, I used to see a lot of shooting stars when I lived in Colorado, too. I'd, I'd stop at a reservoir, but I never heard them sizzle like I did um, at, you know, in the Owens River Valley. Well, it's a beautiful story, Doug, and it's kind of the envy of a lot of people who never get to go as often as your experiences. Yeah. But like I say, the simple oh, yeah. thing is let's try to find as dark a sky as we can. But on the other side of the coin, for everybody that still lives in the light, you know, the, the lights of big cities like New York City and others, there's still a lot of things you can see in the sky. But those experiences of sizzling, there's nothing like that of a sizzling steak and or, in this case, a sizzling meteor. You're very fortunate to have seen that, and it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah they had um, hot tubs. Um, like so, so what we used to do is we'd take the rocks – there, there'd be rocks, and 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 the hot tubs were right along the Owens River, wow. and 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 you'd 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 um, regulate the heat in the hot tub, the natural hot tubs, with the rocks, and and you'd place the rocks so that you were getting, you know, if, if it was too hot in the hot tub, you'd just you'd just move the rocks around, and then you get more of the river water in. 
Sounds like a spiritual experience to me. I'd love to do it. <laughs> Thank you, Doug. Um, let me try and squeeze in one last call here before we uh, run out of time. Let me say hello to Harry, who's in Huntington. Hello, Harry. Hi, how you doing? Uh, as an aside, I saw that fireball in 66, and it was full of colors and smoke and sound. One wow. thing you didn't mention, though, it seemed to be going very slowly. I I yes. saw it on North Avenue in New Rochelle. In fact, I thought I could catch it with my 58 <laughs> Ford convertible. And I took off after it. Yes, It just seemed to be sputtering along there like an old Flash Gordon rocket ship. Harry is so but, right. Uh, anyway, what I want that. to ask you is, what have happened to the concept of zeppelins on Mars? I was reading years ago that NASA wanted to do that uh, for exploration. And I know they got the helicopter, but that poor yes. little thing has to spin like crazy in that thin atmosphere oh, to yeah. go off the ground. It could never carry people. Are right. they, are they the... still going to try something like that? I think they will. The problematic thing there is its size. I mean, you have to get something like that, and obviously you can't drop it in because the spacecraft would have to, once it descends the descent module, you have to inflate it or do something like that because of a carbon dioxide-rich atmosphere. But it's interesting. We put all of our efforts into the ingenuity, which is great, like you're talking about, but it's the envy of any drone fan because imagine the velocity mm. of those propellers like you're talking about, Harry. But hopefully in the future they'll be able to have that. There'll be a space probe onto Titan, on Saturn's moon, the large, big Titan moon, called Dragonfly, which will be like an advanced version of the helicopter, but not a, but not a Zeppelin. Steve, or... uh, on that note, we're going to have to end it there. It's always a real treat to talk with you. I'll look forward to doing this again soon. Thank you, Frank, and good morning to everybody. Thank you. Check out Steve Cates at KTAR.com. He's got a great blog on there. Denunciation straight ahead. Until next hour, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.